hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. I'm Scott. I'm joined today by Drew. Hello there. And in this exciting episode, we are taking a look at some of the selected works of Alex de Inglésia, after a number of stars came into alignment that hinted at him being worthy of further investigation than our brief exposure to him at the Edinburgh International Film Festival many moons ago. So, uh, we are going to do that then. And we're going to kick things off with a look at one of his earlier films, not quite his earliest, but uh, probably the one that is brought him to most international attention, I think, um, with The Day of the Beast. Drew, what's that about? Alex Angulo's Father Angel, a Basque priest, believes that he has cracked a code in the Book of Revelation. As an aside, I have long thought that the Spanish name for this book of the Bible, Apocalypsis or Apocalypse, is so much better and more dramatic, but I digress. <laughs> anyway, as I say, he's cracked a code in the Book of Revelation that says the Antichrist will be born in Madrid on Christmas Eve. He aims to commit as much sin as possible on that day so that he can meet Satan, sell his soul to him, and then be present at the birth to kill the child and end evil forever. Well, it's a plan. (laughs) To this end, he travels to the capital. I suspect this is seen in Spain in much the same way as someone British going to Babylon to confront (laughs) evil, although only without the clever pun, and sets about being a rotter and no mistake. Wandering into a music shop, he unexpectedly enlists the help of Santiago Segura's Jose Maria as a disciple. He's a committee Satanist and, weirdly, generally friendly fellow. (laughs) Jose Maria and Angel together take hostage one Professor Cavan, a TV personality and expert on the occult, who they believe can help them summon your Lucifer fella. This, much to the surprise of obvious Charlatan Cavan, works – Though it's possible that the LSD Jose Maria gave them beforehand also had a part to play. Who can say? <laughs> the story continues through a number of absurd and comical scenes, and a crisis of faith in his mission by Father Van Hell, until finally the trio confront old Goatface McGee in a corruption of the story of the Nativity, featuring the film's most horrendous and shocking scene. Like Tokyo Godfathers, which we discussed recently, The Day of the Beast would be a good candidate for an unusual Christmas films episode, (laughs) as in place of the three wise men, the three daft bastards attempt to bring gifts of death to an infant at Christmas. While it relies too heavily on farce and slapstick at points, The Day of the Beast is otherwise thoroughly entertaining, with a real, and quite biting, socio-political undercurrent as the well-intentioned but blinkered priest tries to fight an assumed singular source or manifestation of evil, blinding him to the more quotidian evils like Jose Maria's casually racist mother or the group of wealthy, fascist vigilantes appearing in the background throughout who kill and torture immigrants and the homeless to clean up Madrid. Its general likability owes a huge amount to Angulo in the lead role, who brings sympathy and warmth to his would-be religious avenger, as well as an excellent turn from Segura as the hapless Jose Maria, the Sancho Panza to Father Angel's Don Quixote. Armando de Razza's Cavan, the third not-so-wise man, who turns from cynical charlatan to committed believer, rounds out the leading roles well. It's certainly uneven, but it's a distinctive, funny, entertaining and pretty unique film that I would generally recommend. However, everything positive that I've said until now can be tossed aside as the film has a fatal flaw. Though on a quest to commit as much sin as possible, Father Angel, mere moments after arriving in Madrid, 
Pushy's a mime, or other street theatre performer, but I think a mime, from a railing down to the entrance of a subway, thereby in one act doing more good for the world than the evil committed in the rest of the film. It's a sham! (laughs) It does, however, claw back a number of points for mute, naked, acid-taking grandpa, who, well, who should be in all films. (laughs) Yes, I was rather fond of this. Um, I... I don't know if I'd heard of this film before, to be honest. Um, I and I'm not sure I'm going to attribute any kind of deeper meaning to any work that Alex Tenglesia has, to be honest. But what I can say is I really enjoyed watching this. It's just an absolute fun uh, blast to watch the um, black comedy. Almost certainly, um, don't think there's any way around it. It's uh, a very uh, almost literal black comedy uh, in, in the kind of. Uh, sense of it. But yes, it's really quite enjoyable. It's just very funny all the way throughout. It's got some madcap performances, which is very much a running theme of this episode, uh, which I think works here better than a lot of the other films. And uh, yeah, it's just a a remarkably enjoyable film to watch. Um, I can't think of too many things that that don't work in it. Uh, It basically manages to nail pretty much everything that it's going for. It's pretty funny. Um, the, The central story is, of course, absolute nonsense but it <laughs> drives its way through quite effectively and certainly engages my interest for the uh, 100 odd minutes that it's that is with us so yeah no complaints with it at all really um plus of course of the two uh instances of uh, you know domestic iron based violence this is probably the better of them so yeah uh, no complaints <laughs> from my direction yes um i i was going to mention that you'd asked me particularly too but uh we are known around these parts, I believe, for having our issues with uh, award ceremonies and things, and as well as them giving the awards so often to the wrong things. I think one of my bigger problems is they don't give the awards the right things. Yes. Uh, for instance, what this film should have been eligible for is, uh, as Scott, you, you put it like this, best priest clocking a wall-eyed dude with an iron seam. Hmm. <laughs> Which, award ceremony should be considerably more specific <laughs> look I'm just saying I would watch the Oscars if they had that category um, and of course it would encourage more use of iron based violence and that's probably a good thing so. <laughs> yes I mean I suppose it loses points for, for only involving one person whereas the, the later iron based violence involves both the the wielder of the iron and the person hit by it. Um, yes. So he's making the iron do double work in that scene. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, this film is sort of the reason for this episode. Uh, it's like the convergence of fates that I mean, we'd always had one of these films on the back burner to go back to the one that we've, we've both seen, which we'll come to later. And mm-hmm. then you'd seen his it's 2017 film, El Bar, Scott, I think. Sounds about right, yes. And like right about the time you said you'd seen that, I had just seen that the Magic Lantern podcast had released an episode about uh, El Dia de la Bestia. And I like, hmm, this is converging. Um, or the fates are converging to make us watch this. Um, <laughs> and just looking for something that basically wasn't Hollywood to do for the next episode. Uh, so we've got a good start here because this is really funny. Um, distinctive, individual... Weird, definitely weird. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> really entertaining. And uh, I've forgotten your man's name. Segura's his surname. Santiago Segura. He's great. Yes. It's nice to see him popping up in a, in a few films along the way here. Uh, there, there's something just wonderful at his hapless, naive, half hearted <laughs> Satanist. Yeah. <laughs> but also, 
really good music store guy, the kind of guy you want to help you find music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, so we're going to move on from there to one of the few films that the director has made in English, or mostly in English, and this one's set between the United States and Mexico, and that's Perdita Durango, Scott. Yes, uh, also known as Dance with the Devil, in which Rosie Perez's titular character, by which I mean Perdita, not Satan, although there's some crossover now, Luke, I suppose, uh, is heading back to Mexico to scatter the remains of her dead sister. While there, she meets Javier Bardem's Romeo Dolorosa, a sort of jack-of-all-criminal-trades who looks a bit like a cross between Little Richard and Screaming Jay Hawkins, and whose current primary scam is setting himself up as a priest of Santeria, aided by Adolfo, who looks and sounds like Screaming Jay Hawkins, because that's who he is. Yes, he's oh, so it for you. Yes. Now, giving a blow-by-blow account of what happens in Pretty Durango is a bit of a fool's errand as it's basically just a violent crime road trip. Um, finding out that the source material, uh, Barry Gifford's 59 Degrees and Raining, the story of Pretty Durango is a sort of spiritual sequel to his Wild at Heart, makes a lot of sense in retrospect, uh, this having a similar unhinged, free-associating vibe to it. Nonetheless, I should make aware that this is the sort of film that takes a break from a scheme involving the illegal transport of refrigerated human fetuses to make cosmetic moisturiser in order to kidnap people at random to murder in a ceremony. So it's not doing well on the sympathetic protagonist scale, but still, not every film needs one of them, and our Andy heroes here are at least interesting enough to keep you engaged with their antics. Which is not to say that it's necessarily good, although I don't think it's bad exactly. Uh, By its nature, it lacks focus, ultimately spending a bit too long flashing back to Romeo's childhood, or dialogue between the two teen kidnappees that doesn't do much to shed light on anyone involved's worldview, or with an underserved James Galdolfini as the DEA agent on the trail of Romeo. There's certainly a very 90s indie feel to most of the film, in a way that these days we'd call Tarantino-esque, and perhaps this feels most comparable to something like Natural Born Killers, at least in the way that it seems to value shock over having any kind of point. I'll concede that at least there are some people who would make an argument that there's more to Natural Born Killers, even if I don't particularly agree with that, but I don't think there would be anyone going to bat for Perdita Durango. Still, I was entertained enough for the duration of the film, thanks to the inclusion of buckets of nihilistic violence and a Nick Cage-level performance of scenery true nihilation from Javier Bardem. Uh, Really, my main complaint with the film, despite the title and her strong introduction, before long, Perdita is a spectator in her own story, Mm -hmm. carried along in Mm -hmm. Romeo's current, apparently only because a film needed to happen, which is strange. Anyway, this is a film I've heard the name bandied about for many years, and I'm glad to have finally seen it, but I'll most likely never go back to it. Uh, Yeah, Perdita is mostly not in Perdita Durango. It's... It's strange, she doesn't have a lot of agency sometimes, and the rest of the time she's just absent. Yeah, it's strange. It's like she's set up really strong in the first few minutes, and then it just kind of forgets about her for the rest of the film. So it's very strange, given the title of the film. Yeah, um, I I did not like this film. I really, really didn't like it. However, I was way too interested in it to think it's bad, exactly. Yeah. I was watching this, um, and like... A part, of, a good part of me, in fact, was was quite quite convinced that this must be about something. Mm. I've come to the conclusion that no, no, it's not. It's just a bunch of mental stuff happening. Yeah. Uh, but I was watching it, and like, it's, there's too much interest. Now. There's too many interesting visuals of our, oh, your boy Bardem. It's kind of good to know he's got that in him. That kind of, yeah. well, I suppose performance, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I felt I don't know anything about the source material at all. And 
I've never seen Wild at Heart, so I, and I didn't even realise that was the same author, but I've not seen that. Mm. Um, but yeah, it just it just felt like it must be like an allegory or something, or there was some reference to something like what they were doing. Like they represented, I don't know. I don't think it was this. Was like, like that it was going to be some sort of like post-colonial thing or something like that, and then it's like, no, no, it's just weird crap happening. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, and it's like it was lesser for that, to be honest. It it drags on a bit. Uh, it's not the first time I'm going to say that tonight that I'll come as a surprise to no one, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, it does have a bit of a third act problem. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, but it's interesting. The biggest problem with it again, you don't have to have likable protagonists, but when both of your protagonists are murdering rapists, yeah, I have a kind of hmm. hard problem uh, problem getting a hook into that. You know. It, it's not good I don't like these people, they're not nice people um, there were two other real problems I had with it, one was I guess you might describe it as mechanical, but clearly Javier Bardem speaks good English but I wonder if he's acted had acted in English before then and I didn't check, I don't know if you had Scott but sometimes while he was speaking the English very clearly, his emphasis was weird Hmm. He was emphasizing yeah. the wrong, not even the wrong syllables, like the wrong words and phrases. Um, and with the director not being an English, a native English speaker, he's maybe not going to notice that either. Um, this was I'll, his first English speaking role. Yeah, well, there you go then. Um, hmm. So by the time you get to Skyfall or something, obviously he's, he's very, very well versed in it. It's just, hmm. uh, and it didn't bother me, it was just obvious that he was kind of maybe slightly of his element and if the director's not a native English speaker it's not really going to notice perhaps that it was that although curiously there were a couple of other weird emphases on um, from other actors so I'm wondering if actually they were getting line readings from the director but because he's not a native English speaker <laughs> he was getting them wrong yeah because it was like there was a couple of uh, Rosie Perez's lines and I don't recall if it was Gandolfino but not um, it's hard to tell with the two kids because they were both pretty terrible actors. Uh, yeah. But there was at least one other time I noticed it and it's like, there's like really weird emphasis. And I think, is that a line reading? In which case, it's that wasn't a good idea if you don't speak English natively. But that was really minor. I just kind of, I was like, yeah, another thing that held my interest watching this was like, why has that happened? Uh, <laughs> but um, yes, the other thing is, is the tonal shifts. They're so weird. Yeah. Again, it's not the first, that's not the only time I'm going to mention that tonight either, but as I say, the, the protagonists are murdering rapists and then there's this strange little sidetrack that Romeo goes down at one point when he's talking about having seen Burt Lancaster films, Vera Cruz in particular, uh, when he was on his little island um, yeah. where every race lived. Um, we didn't talk about that. The fact that Javier Bardem, the the Spaniard, the European, is playing someone who's of like a mestizo, I guess, a mixed race Latin American man. They're like, and then look like comfortable. I'm not happy about that. Um, <laughs> that, that was weird, but uh, I don't know quite what was going on there. Uh, although, curiously, his brother, who played his cousin in this, does look, he despite also being Spanish and his brother, did look more Latin American, hmm, which was yeah. weird. 
curious. Uh, I mean, I don't know man's history, so maybe there is um, a blood in there. Uh, it just because Javier Bardem is so clearly European. It just it felt a bit uncomfortable that he had his facial hair like he was, but uh, yeah, um, and the. Oh, just the hair. His hair. Oh, dear God, his hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, I, I was, I, I've distracted myself. The tonal shifts, uh, when you've got, like, he's murdering people, then they go on that little genre about watching the uh, Burt Lancaster films, which is then called back to in was the last scene, because Romeo has said, like, that's a way for a man to die, referencing Burt Lancaster being gunned down by Gary Cooper at the end of that film. And yeah. then... If somebody walks up and looks at him and goes, oh, he's got really nice teeth. And I, that totally threw me for a minute until I realised, <laughs> no, they're referencing him mentioning Burt Lancaster's teeth at the start of the film. Like, yeah. What is the, where is this film coming from? What is it saying? Uh, and then, yeah, I said, they're kidnapping people, but then just after they're kidnapped people, they're driving along in, actually maybe before, driving along in uh, the truck with... Um, Javier Bardem and Rosie Perez singing along to music and it's like completely manic, giddy, almost like childlike look in um, Romeo's face as he's singing along to this song. It's, it's so all over the place totally. Yeah. Um, like, how, how many tones do you want? All of them. Mm-hmm. At once, possibly. <laughs> so it's it's interesting and for that reason I don't regret having watched it uh, I don't actually think this is a film I'd heard of before not that I recall Scott but mm. uh, I don't think it's one I could recommend though it's um, it's too it's too yes <laughs> in many ways it's too yeah um, I agree it's, it's an interesting film I, um, I'm i not sad to have watched it um, I probably kind of recommend it to people who are interested in films because it's interesting um, and you can probably get get something out of it um, I probably wasn't so bothered by tonal shifts because I wasn't taking it particularly seriously to begin with at the start um, it, it just does not seem to be the film that kind of either earns or wants a great deal of serious um, inspection into it. I mean, if you want something that's um, I mean, if you were thinking of like maybe seeing, are they meaning anything by bringing so much of this Santeria thing to it, it's like, well, yeah, if, if you if you were thinking of that, then maybe something that's not done by someone as, someone as Chicago as Barry Gifford is probably not the source for that kind of material, you know what I mean? So um, yeah, it, it was just a, a kind of crime jaunt, a pulp fiction in the uh, the, the old sense of the word and um, in, in that regard it, it's sort of interesting and a, a sort of a kind of evolutionary end point of what Tarantino could have been doing if he <laughs> went completely off the rails um, I suppose uh, yes I, I don't regret having watched it but um, yeah, it's a guarded recommendation I suppose uh, for people yeah. who are interested enough in films to be you know say listening to podcasts about films so yeah take that for what it's worth I mean, I'd hesitate to compare it to Tarantino because the dialogue just doesn't live up um, and Tarantino films True. tend to have a story yeah. uh, but I would perhaps consider retracting my lack of recommendation because I really did find it interesting Again, not the same as good, not the same as entertaining but yeah. interesting sort of in a kind of car crash kind of way kind of thing yeah in many ways, yeah. Um, yes. Although I, the tonal shift really did bother me. It's like, oh, are we supposed to be amused by the murdering rapists now? And I'm not letting go of that because that, <laughs> I was finding that difficult. But it's, uh, yes, it's interesting. And I think the only other films I've seen like it are also going to be in this podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
So it has that going for it. Yes. Um, shall we move onwards then to 800 bullets? Yes, let's. Seems like a lot of bullets. It is a lot of bullets. Um, mm-hmm. It is 800 of them. Almost literally. In fact, entirely literally. <laughs> but we'll come to that. <laughs> 800 balas, or 800 bullets, stars Sancho Gracia as Julian, a stuntman and stunt coordinator who worked during the glory days of the Spanish-shot spaghetti westerns, and who now replaces glory days in the western-themed tourist attraction of Texas Hollywood in Almeria. A real place, as it happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was surprised to find. <laughs> Entertaining handfuls of tourists with scenes of cowboys and Indians and, well, less than gracious tours of the Museum of the West. <laughs> From this, well, this and his cut of a cannabis business were out of the town, he scrapes a meagre living, enough to keep him in alcohol and, occasionally, ladies of negotiable virtue, which will suffice for him. Certainly, it's enough to quieten his demons, the loudest of which is the death of his son. Also a stuntman, whose death and a stunt gone wrong, and a genuinely wince-inducing stunt at that, opens the film. These demons, and the well-suppressed basic humanity, threaten to be woken up fully by an unexpected arrival. His grandson, Carlos, Luis Castro, a little brat of a child who has run away from a school trip. Carlos is a spoiled little rich kid whose uptight mother Laura, Carmen Maura, may pay more attention to her business particularly Chekhov's theme park proposal, than her son, and who at the very least has no interest in talking about her late husband, Carlos's father. An unexpected discovery during a temper tantrum gives Carlos some clues as to his ancestry, and it's for that reason he skedaddles to Almeria. Here he bonds with Julian, who the film portrays as the missing and necessary macho influence in his life. Alex de la Iglesia's films do seem to be marked out by the idea of women as, if not the enemy, then a controlling and emasculating force on men. And this is certainly not the only time we'll be talking about that in this episode. <laughs> Julian eventually also bonds with Carlos, uh, though in his case it's considerably more begrudgingly. The director's trademark excess is embodied in this film in a scene of wanton debauchery. Wanton debauchery, is that a tautology? <laughs> I feel it might be. <laughs> where the employees of Texas Hollywood, as well as some locals, immigrant farm workers and the aforementioned ladies of negotiable virtue, go hog-wild with the credit card Carlos's mum gave him for emergencies, as well as leaving the Pogues Fiesta constantly swirling around my head for the past two days. (laughs) It also left me considering Carlos to be the world's luckiest adolescent, though feeling decidedly uncomfortable about it. The next day, a super-pissed Laura arrives and, to punish Julian, fires Chekhov's theme park proposal, whereby her company buys the western town to tear it down and puts Julian and his co-workers out of a job. Julian then purchases the 800 bullets of the title and makes an arm stand against the new owners along with his colleagues. This final third really drags and sees the humour quotient substantially reduced in favour of overlong and underwhelming action scenes as the cast of Texas Hollywood fend off the police. It's this last section that lets the film down most, a film which I'd really been quite enjoying up to that point. Not that there's a section entirely without merit, there is still both humour and warmth, but the actions of the characters don't stand up to a great deal of scrutiny, and it really does outstay its welcome. For the most part, though, I enjoyed my time with 800 Bullets, and much of that has to do with a great central turn from Grathia, whose charisma does a lot to make up for the fact that Julian is a stupid, selfish, and absolute tit. Necessarily, I suppose, due to its theme of machismo, the female players are underserved. 
particularly Terrily Paveth, who plays Rothio, Julian's estranged wife, and Carlos's grandmother, which is rather a pity. Adrian Willis also works as a PN of sorts to those great films shot in Almeria, which include the Dollars trilogy, as well as historical epics like El Cid and Lawrence of Arabia. The dramatic landscape itself doing much of that work by simply existing. <laughs> it's a pretty decent film all in all, but it could have done without the predictable cameo at the end and the particularly crappy body double. Mm. I never doubted Julian's stories of the past and never considered that the point, assuming the crux of his character to be can't let go of the past, not made the past up. Otherwise, pretty good, but could have done with about half an hour being chopped out. Yeah, at least. Um, of all the films we're talking about today, this is the one I understand the least. Um, I, Whether I liked or disliked other ones more or less, I could at least understand what the point of it was, what the kind of general gist of it was trying to be. 800 bullets, I don't get. There's like, it's by uh, Denglacius' standards quite tame for a lot of it until it suddenly isn't. <laughs> and like, I can see there's there's a draft of this where, you know, third act aside, like, you wouldn't need to do an awful lot of workshopping, um, cut out a few swear words and admittedly quite a lot of hookers, and this would be a Disney film. Um, <laughs> however, the, the last act is so wantonly violent in places, you know, people actually die in what was a kind of light-hearted whimsical you know, ballad of not being able to let go of the past and you know, old films, that kind of thing. Um, it's not exactly a sudden change of you know, pacing and um, t- tone, but it certainly isn't, doesn't really fit with the rest of the film. And it is, as you mentioned, way too long. Yeah, this this needs a bit of this needs a less dark final act, and that final act needs to be yeah at least half an hour longer. This this is a ninety minute film that unfortunately takes two hours, mm-hmm. and doesn't really have enough in the way of interest to maintain my attention. Um, I, I, I I kind of wandered more in this film than a lot of the other films we'll, we'll speak about today. Uh, I still don't dislike it. As you mentioned, a lot of. Um, Quite charismatic turns, uh, particularly from the leads. So it's um, it's easy easy film to watch, but ultimately, I kind of don't think it quite sticks the landing, and I'm not quite sure that it ever really knew where it was supposed to be landing in the first place, and it's just kind of flopped down at the end of two hours and went well. There you go. Okay, bye. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it it doesn't quite um, doesn't quite give me a satisfying uh, conclusion at the end of it. But yeah. F- Certainly by no means unenjoyable, and uh, I think one of the, the nice things about this podcast episode for me is I don't think there's anything here that I really uh, disliked in any real sense of the word. I've got my issues with them, but there's nothing here that I actually regret watching, which is not normally the case for, yeah, for I, a lot of our podcasts. No, I, I was, I admit, and because of our one previous experience, I, I was concerned about this, and while I certainly don't like everything here, everything is at very least interesting. Which makes yeah. such a difference. Yeah, um, yeah the you, you're saying about not sticking the landing. It, it's that final act, um, and mm. again, not for the first time, not for the last time in this episode. I think yeah. that it's kind of it's unfocused, and I mean, I do see what it's about up to that point. It's it's focusing on on Julian mostly, and it's besides the kind of machismo, kind of vaguely misogynistic overtones of film, as a lot of these do, which is, I feel very uncomfortable watching some of these for that. Despite women being such strong characters in so many of the films, that's, that's 
weird. Uh, mm. Anyway, it's the it's a character study of Julian, um, and you know this is a man who can't really let go of the past, and but seems to know his own failings, and all that kind of introspection is quite interesting. And then you get to the last act, and had that final act been him wanting to make this final stand, and where it's shorter too, but I think that probably would have worked. But then when it just brings everybody else in as well, like, well why are these people doing that? That yeah, makes no make sense. Any sense. They don't even like him. Mm-hmm. Um, and like they all seem pretty confident about, or pretty settled on get out of him. I mean, it wasn't a particularly great living and a particularly enjoyable anyway. I mean, like, why was the man who gets hung every day um, <laughs> joining in? He's like, what is he missing out on? <laughs> So yeah, it's like the the fact that other people joined in at the end, it did make a lot of sense and it just it goes on for so long. And mm-hmm. it's like the first two acts were sketched out reasonably well and the third one like they made up on the day or days. Um, yeah. I just I wonder how much of that is based on like where it comes from. Because I'm just I didn't look at this earlier. I I, I glanced at the English Wikipedia, which has nothing on it at all. Um, <laughs> but I'm looking at the the Spanish page for at the moment and it says yeah, it's based on the director's own idea and of Jorge Guerreque Gerveria who wrote most of these with him um, based on the place in Almeria where this is set Hollywood, Texas as it was known it's now known as Fort Bravo and then that's that's kind of like the Johnny English story isn't it? It's like basing something on such a flimsy premise Yeah, but it says here um, the character of Julian is inspired very clearly by a series of real anecdotes from the biography of actor Aldo Sambrell. Un Asido? No, okay, that's a word I don't know. But um, someone who seemed to have uh, been in a lot of the spaghetti westerns shot in there, in Almeria. So that seems to me that they're suggesting that like, there's some anecdotes of things that happened to this guy while he was filming stuff, and like, well, we'll base a film on that. And it's, it's not the strongest basis, and I think that may explain the rather kind of unfocused nature of most of it. Yeah. I kind of get the feeling, and it's not a lot even in the Spanish one, there's a lot more than the English one. It seems a bit like, like, we've got a really interesting location and some anecdotes, <laughs> let's make a film. And maybe didn't take an awful lot of, like, preparation time in between. Yeah. <laughs> it has that feel about it again. I mean, the character of Julian is quite strong, and, and um, Sandro Garcia's, um, Garcia's performance is really good. Uh, but it's just it f- that final act is so messy. I just seem to have anything to say, and it it feels like it was a half baked. Isn't quite the right word, but um, it didn't really have the strongest bones. Yeah, it, it seems like an ending that came about because someone thought it'd be a good ending without really having any concern about how it matched up with the rest of the character. I mean, yeah. like what you're saying, it might have worked where it just him doing one desperate last stand, but convincing everyone else to do some weird um, Quixote-like last stand for no good reason and just murdering a bunch of policemen because yeah. uh, reasons. Um, it's a bit weak and it doesn't really fit with the rest of the film, which is, which is you know, as I say, it, it does not need an awful lot of changing to be like very kid-friendly. Um, yeah. it's, it's, it's strange. It's just it, totally this is the one thing where it's shifting about the place and it really didn't work for me and it just couldn't land it. it, it it's probably my least favourite of these films, but um, it's still not a film that I hated w- watching. So 
you know, that's good. But it's definitely not my least favourite because I was enjoying the first two thirds of it really quite a lot. Uh, mm. Just that final third let me down. But I mean, it's just talking about the, the, the kid-friendly nature of it, apart from the... Um, the luckiest adolescent bit I was talking yes. about, Scott. Is like, you're definitely not getting a Disney film, but... Statutory um, rape. Yes. <laughs> Lucky boy, but um, <laughs> and from the boy's point of view, he's probably very happy, but that's, yeah. <laughs> that was, that was um, uncomfortable. <laughs> but, uh, like, in that final scene, too, because I realise there's this... I don't know if misogyny is the right word, but this... There's this thread through a lot of these films of like that women are like the enemy or something, mm. and again it doesn't really match up. Like there's so many strong female performances too, and um, Alice de la Iglesia is kind of like the a protege of Pedro Almodovar, kind of like the See. women's director, um, yeah. at least as far as men go, uh, who uh, treats his female characters extremely well. Uh, it kind of goes contrary to that, and some of the same actors too. But yeah, in that final act, they add things in, like the the ginger guy whose wife leaves them in the middle of that kind of pseudo orgy scene um, mm. with the the Pogue song, which I cannot get out of my head. It's playing through my head as I'm talking. It will not leave. <laughs> uh, yeah, so she leaves on that because well, he's a he's a knob, isn't he? He's, um, but then it stops in the middle of that final scene to send her an abusive telegram. Yeah, that final act rather than the final scene. That was weird. Why is that in there? Yeah, uh, but again, there's enough interesting in there, and it's just it's a very striking looking film because that that landscape is famous. Um, you know, yeah, it, it's passed for for several different countries, um, um, and successfully so. And it's it's very interesting. So even when I'm not always sure, like why anybody's doing any different thing, at least they're in a place that looks nice. Well, I'm not sure that the, why they're doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, will we move on? Ready when you are. Yeah, oh, actually, uh, something just occurred to me about eight hundred bullets, Scott. I was going to mention this. Uh, I don't think it's anything important, but the director's a Basque, um, and there are a few sort of yeah. Basque references stuck into these films. I, I wonder if some of them are slightly. I don't know if like they're making fun of him or Basque people or or something else there. But in eight hundred bullets, there was a character who, despite being from. Uh, Andalusia, they make it very clear that he's from Andalusia he decides that he's from Bilbao and he's an athletic Bilbao supporter and he, he's completely yeah. basque uh, <laughs> and they're questioning why anybody would do that like, why is that in this man's film? The guy that <laughs> likes jumping through windows <laughs> yes. and the guy that violently dies in that final act when like, they change, oh this is not a fun yeah. film anymore <laughs> uh, yeah uh, that, that struck me um, not in any particular way, I was like why is that? Is that a reference to something? Would you? Would that seem different in Spain? And it, it's not like Athletic Bilbao have ever been like the. Well, I mean, they've won the league a couple of times, but they're not like they've been the top team. It's not like, say, someone from hmm. like North um, or Southeast England suddenly like decided they're Manchester United support and kind of been ribbed for it or something like that. So, yeah. Very curious about what that was about. But, uh, yeah, yes. no, I didn't, to be honest, I didn't read anything deeper into that than a sort of general concussion-based uh, <laughs> pun. Uh, I don't think that actually didn't occur to me. But he's constantly throwing himself off that roof, so so maybe, yeah, maybe he's just very confused. Yes, though, uh, hey, there's, a, there's this kind of thing I have, actually, a general fascination, Scott, with names of films, in particular when they're they're, they're translated to another language or from another language and there's actually a good couple of examples in this this podcast uh, I found that 
when things are translated from Spanish to English or well, French to English, whatever it may be, that uh, for the most part, people try to get like really quite close to the feeling of it. Whereas mm. for some reason, going the other way, there are so many films I've seen translated into, again, French and Spanish, it's the two I'm most familiar with, French and Spanish that just end up like taking all of the fun or the point of the title to come up with the, the, the most perfunctory title you could possibly imagine. Yes. Um, Man with Gun, the movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so there are a couple, a couple in here, like, I'm really curious as to why they changed them when they did. Um, this one is perhaps the, the least of the three examples that we're coming to, but Crimen Perfecto, which is like a corruption of Crimen Perfecto, English, perfect crime. but So in Britain released as the Fairpect Crime, hmm. keeping that thing, and it's actually, it's not so important for what actually happens in the film, the name, but, you know, it gives you a sense there. Yet, for some reason, released in the United States, says the perfect crime, kind of missing the point entirely. And I don't have a point entirely. Um, it's <laughs> often it's often so. Uh, it's like, really curious, who makes the decisions for these things and what kind of authority to have or on whose authority to do it and why because why do you miss the point so much yeah it it does not speak highly of the um, american studio's opinion of the intelligence of their audience if nothing else yes Uh, well i guess at least they think they'd notice it was spelled wrong but it was kind of meant to be (laughs) um yes but uh yes here at least cuban fair pecto or um, fair-pecked crime, Scott. Yes, yes. In which uh, Guillermo Toledo's Rafael Gonzalez has it all, or at least has a plan to eventually get it all. He is the superstar salesman of a Madrid department store, managing the women's clothing department with eyes on a promotion, as well as eyes on every new bell assistant in the store, who mystifyingly find him irresistible. But who am I to judge appearances? Um, anyway, the competition for the promotion turns nasty, and after a mild brawl, his competition, Luis Varela's Don Antonio Fragas is accidentally killed. Now, this crime isn't perfect at all, as Raphael scrambles to cover his tracks. Unexpectedly, he has some help, as the hmm, homely assistant, Lords, uh, Monica Severa, uh, who has been besotted with Raphael for a while. Uh, she helps dispose of the body at the low, low price of blackmailing Raphael into both a relationship and the run of the, run of the floor, having him fire anyone that she dislikes. Well, this can't stand, so Raphael will have to find a way out, even if that means another perfect crime. Uh, to kill lords, aided by the imagined ghost of Don Antonio, as Raphael's mental state deteriorates. Now, I suppose by this point you're used to the idea of black humour in Alex Inglésia films, and this is no exception. Uh, I found this entirely entertaining throughout, apart from a final act edition of Clowns, which isn't actually terrifying. <laughs> More on this in our next review. Oh, uh, yes. It's a whole paragraph <laughs> coming about that. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I don't think there's much point looking for any broader point or commentary in society here. I think it's just here to have a laugh for an hour and a half-ish and achieve that handily. So I don't think I have a great deal else to say about it other than to recommend it. Um, if you are taking it seriously, I think there's a lot more you could analyse in it, but uh, I, I kind of don't. It's too dumb a concept to really read too much into it as far as I'm concerned. But uh, yes, certainly plays into a lot of the uh, tropes of Inglidias' work that you were talking about earlier, uh, Drew. But uh, yes, it's uh, as a film on its own merits, quite entertaining. No real complaints about it. Give it a go. Yeah, uh, this one I, I didn't even try to find any deeper meaning. This is one that I was pretty confident there wasn't anything in. Yeah. Predator Durango, I hoped for. But I came yeah. to the conclusion there wasn't this one. I kind of thought, no, there isn't. But I found it thoroughly entertaining. 
I really like um, Willie Toledo. Uh, oh, yes. I, <laughs> he has a great line in outfits later on in the film as well. Which yeah. Um, I mean, like, whether it's believable he would get all these women or not, I don't know. But in, I guess nowadays he might be considered a pickup artist, but considerably less sleazy. So um, mm. it's all about confidence. That's certainly how he's putting it. But Willie Toledo's great. Uh, I had seen him before in a few things. He's in. Do you remember the other side of the bed, Scott? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, he's got um, quite a big role in that. He's one of the stars of that. So I've seen him before. I really like him. He he's very entertaining. Uh, I was slightly concerned because well, there's a narration, but in this film it works. It's great, and mm. it's like like within a second or two of the film starting, he's talking directly to the camera. That doesn't always work. It does in this. Uh, he's kind of like the hero of his own story to begin with until it all goes wrong. Um, yeah, I was trying to think of what else it reminded for it reminded me of. It maybe is it was it How to Get Ahead in Advertising, uh, Richard E. Grant film from ages ago, or was, uh, something like that. Is it, there's some other kind of vaguely similar kind of film that kind of reminds me of, but I couldn't quite nail it in my head. But yeah, it works for this film. Yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, Willie Toledo's got a lot of charisma, which I mean, mm-hmm. it goes a long way. It, it just works really well. It's it's a ridiculously daft film. Mm-hmm. But it's really entertaining, and it's full of just. Well, it's it's got kind of high is not quite the right word, but there's some kind of intellectual humour in there, and some really black humour, like the bit when he's talking about the guy that used to be the head of the department, uh, mm-hmm. and he's saying uh, he was something special. He had a different blood in his veins. No, literally, he had leukemia. Died five months later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then when he gets injured at the amusement park, and there's that little kid just keeps smacking him on the head with a toy hammer. There's a running theme throughout his work that whenever someone falls over, small kids will instantly appear and start beating people with whatever comes to hand. And I'm and, here for it. Yeah, it's very weird, but I am tremendously amused by this. Um, <laughs> I, I don't. As a general rule, I don't care much for for slapstick and physical comedy but for some reason I've always had an incredible weak point for people being hit in the head um, <laughs> and that fits right in there as well as just being wonderfully odd <laughs> I mean it's not a film I think you could say a great deal about it's it's a comedy and it's funny um, yeah what more do you want yeah um, well what Lester want less clowns Scott yes always less clowns <laughs> It, the, the second half of the film almost feels like a different film because suddenly there, there, there's a green painted ghost zombie murder victim fella. <laughs> it, yeah. it fits right in there. Didn't bother me in the slightest. Like, yeah. Okay, that's there now. That's quite funny. <laughs> yeah. I, again, it's, it's one of those ones more difficult to talk about because I don't think there's a lot of depth to it. It's just a funny film that I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Less satisfying to discuss in a film podcast, perhaps, but entirely satisfying to watch. Uh, what what I would say is, if you've never heard of this uh, Dylan Glazier fellow before, uh, I think this might make a very good entry point um, because it is a bit more flyaway and it does have most of the things that are in all of the rest of his work, but um, in a kind of more generally acceptable level, I think. Yeah, it's slightly um, broader than his other stuff, I would say. Yeah, yeah. So this might be a good place to start with if you if you just want to get into this without um, his canon, without getting into the more extreme ends of it, which arguably he started uh, with. Uh, so yeah, this is a nice kind of uh, entry point for it, I would yeah. imagine. If, as you say, maybe not the most interesting to talk about, but yeah, it's one of the most easily enjoyable films without uh, any uh, complicating factors to it. Yeah, um, I, mean, I, I do question his choice of exotic car. It's like it's a Peugeot. 
and it's also for some reason forty thousand euros for a Peugeot. Um, I mean, it's yeah. sensible, I guess, but yeah, it's not exactly a dream car. Yeah, yeah, um, also weirdly expensive for a Peugeot. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, I, I am very much on a tangent there, but it's just, yeah, it's a good entry point. I would agree with you there. And then if you found you like that, I would probably direct you towards Dave the Beast next. Yeah. Where you've got still some of that same humour and the black humour in particular, but with um, considerably more bite to it and more heft. Uh, yes. But yeah, it's, yes. Yeah, definitely a good entry point. It's, it's just going to disappoint. There's not an awful lot more to say about it other than it is funny. Um, <laughs> what more do you want from me? Let's move on then to the last circus. I, I, I'll warn you now. Folks, um, this review may contain tangents. <laughs> now, first of all, I learned an important lesson from Ballada Triste de Trompeta, which is, in Spanish, sad trumpet ballad, named after a song that was a big hit in Spain in the 1960s, that is, for some reason, and going back to my topic from earlier, translated to English as The Last Circus. Why wouldn't sad trumpet <laughs> ballad work? Yeah. That's a key thing about the film. Whereas the last circus, well, there's a circus. There's no suggestion it's your last one. No, very disappointed with that. I've, I've, I know of circuses that have existed past this film. So yes. it's a lie. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this, I really am on a tangent here, but as to my earlier comments, Scott, I'm always fascinated by this, the changes and things when something is so like wholesale changed. Hmm. And often it'll be like a, a reference to a particular event or person or something that and it's in a country a film's native country completely understood but we lost it aside so uh, we changed the name that's sort of the case here with that song by Raphael but really sad trumpet ballad that's understandable anywhere surely because the last circus makes you think it's about the circus and it's actually not. And it's also yeah. not the last one, so lies. Very <laughs> <laughs> far needs to pop up again, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah. I learned an important lesson from The Last Circus, uh, and it's not what it's about. Unlike Perdita Durango, I am confident that it is about something, and even know what, and could indeed expound upon it. But rather, that one should never trust one's memory over your friends. <laughs> or rather trust your friend's memory over your own Ugh, it's about clowns I recently kvetched it's only got clowns at the beginning said Scott the bastard <laughs> it has clowns throughout and as has been well established clowns are the worst <laughs> I mean it does admittedly have a clown disfiguring his own face with caustic soda and a steam iron then dressing up in a makeshift clown come bishop costume before holding an Uzi in each hand and murdering people <laughs> So it's a pretty unique take on clowns, I'll give it that. In my defence, at that point, is it really a clown? <laughs> I would argue not. But there I are many things later though, Scott. I, I, <laughs> and still though, clowns. <laughs> I would like to make it clear here that I have no fear of clowns, a phobia that some people do have. Rather, I think clowns are societal ill. A worthless, talentless group of individuals that exist solely to perpetuate misery and to make the world a generally sadder, less magical place. Like Tommy MPs. Beginning in the middle of the Spanish... <laughs> Sorry, uh, just to be clear, tangent over. <laughs> Beginning in the middle of the Spanish Civil War, a troop of clowns is entertaining some children. These children are laughing, so that's historical veracity right out of the window from the get-go. <laughs> 
Though they start screaming soon enough, which seems much more correct where clowns are concerned. When a division of the Republican militia bursts in and forces the clowns to join in the fight against Franco's nationalists. One clown, played by Santiago Segura, and referred to inexplicably as the funny clown. Um, Can you set like an audio shrug there? Because that's what I'm doing. (laughs) Finds his true calling and slaughters most of a regiment armed with just a machete. The clown is imprisoned and forced to perform slave labour, allowing him the opportunity to see his son, Javier, and tell him that he should become a clown, but that he's seen too much sorrow to be the funny clown. So he must become the sad clown, the clown that nobody laughs at. So, a clown. (laughs) The young Javier has more immediate concerns in mind, though, and performs some acts of defiance against the nationalist forces one of which inadvertently leads to his father's death and seems to cause Javier to become timid and unwilling to speak out against aggression. Something we realise when we meet the adult Javier, played by Carlos Arrefes, in the 1970s, about to start his first job as a clown. Here he meets Sergio, or Begbie the Clown, played by Antonio de la Torre, a violent psychopath and wife-beater who rules with fear over the rest of the circus, even the owner. Javier falls in love with Sergio's girlfriend, the stunningly attractive and amazingly named Carolina Bang, another member of the circus, uh, but, like the others, is too afraid to stand up to Sergio or stop his violent assaults of Carolina. That may, in fact, have been very smart self-preservation as, when he eventually does do so, it does not end well for him. (laughs) Close to but not quite dead. Something goes click inside Javier's brain as he lies, broken, in a hospital bed. And it's at this point that Javier, and the film, goes what I believe is correctly called proper mental. (laughs) Setting in motion a series of events that will see Javier go feral, eat a raw deer, become a human gun dog, bite General Franco, and then become a heavily armed Pope Pennywise as I mentioned earlier. After writing this, I went back and listened to the discussion Scott and I, Scott and I had on our previous podcast intercarnation about this film, this being the only film this episode either of us had seen before, and I was struck by how much less negative I felt about it this time around. Now, I can't say that I like it, but I'm certainly much more appreciative of it. I was not struck, though, by the deep antipathy I showed towards clowns in that discussion ten years ago, because that is a true and abiding stance. But I was amused, though still disappointed, by Scott's assertion that there's no standing <laughs> there's no standing orders for armies to kill all clowns, and we call ourselves civilized. <laughs> the leaps of time, location and knowledge were of little consequence to me on this viewing, and likewise the tonal shifts, because there's just so much else crazy going on, but also because I was focusing on background details more some of which later become foreground features, including the regular references to the case of El Luta, seen as a hero by many and a symbol of opposition to Franco. There's certainly a lot of symbols here, and references, and allegories, and metaphors, all in a film that begins as a war movie, of sorts, and ends like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein done as grand opera, all on top of a giant cross built above a cave filled with the skeletons of tens of thousands of soldiers, just in case there wasn't enough imagery for you. (laughs) It's full, is what I'm saying. Overfull, really. And that's the problem. There's certainly plenty to dig into, but there's too much, and seemingly 
being unable to decide what to put in, Dela Iglesia decided to go with everything, often all at the same time. It's certainly, like many of his films, distinctive, and quite unlike most others you're likely to see. But The Last Circus could well have done with a good strong pinch of restraint. But also, clowns. Not something I could in good conscience recommend. But that's the clowns. The, the film? Yeah, probably. It's okay. I could only recommend it because it's interesting. Oh. But be, <laughs> be prepared for clowns, which are wrong. <laughs> yeah, I still prefer it over Pan's Labyrinth, to be fair. Um, I... I um yeah, I, I deliberately didn't go back. It was, what, 10 years ago, I guess, by this point? Yes, uh, um, almost exactly. A decade. Um, uh, I can't. I, I didn't go back and check what I thought about it at the time. My memory of it was, it's weird, so I guess I like it. Um, because I think by this point, we, or certainly I, would covered a fair few um, Edinburgh International Film Festivals at the time, and a lot of the films you get at film festivals turn out to be incredibly dull. Oh, yeah, and this um, is certainly not dull. Yeah, it's about Scott Weird. We'd both done a number of EFI, EIFFs together by that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll just mention that, that on that very episode in which we discussed this, we also dis- um, discussed um, Our Day Will Come about, you know, the ve- the, the coming of yes. the, the gingers, yeah. <laughs> yes. um, and Postmortem, the world's proudest, most barricaded building film. <laughs> yes. Uh, film festivals are weird. Um, <laughs> particularly if you get to watch all, almost every film that comes out in them. There's, there's a, it's, a, it's a weird selection um, box that you get, and almost every of them are turds rather than chocolate. Um, but anyway, um, The Last Circus, I was pleased to come back to this and find that I feel more or less the same way as at least remember thinking of this because this is really weird um, like I said I'm not sure I really like it but it is so strange that you kind of have to watch it you kinda, it, it demands your attention um, all the way throughout it and um, th- yeah it's completely unhinged I'm not going to attempt to map any sort of meaning into this at all but it's I can't take my eyes off it um, it's 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 a hell of a thing to watch. Um, yeah, I, I think ultimately I don't have an awful lot more to say than than you have already, Drew. But um, yeah, there's there's an awful lot going on here. I don't think more than half of it actually lands, but still, that somehow is enough to certainly keep you engaged going through this, wondering what on earth is going to happen next. Um, it's it, it's it, it is unlike anything I've seen, even from the director himself. Just Excluding his kind of work, it's it's quite outre for even for him. Um, I can't think of anything else that's particularly like it. It's really strange. It's really interesting. I don't think it's actually good, but it's such an anomaly that again, if you've any interest in films at all, you, you really need to see this because it's so strange. And uh, yeah, I, I I don't know if that's necessarily a complete recommendation, but. I suppose it kind of is. Um, yeah, it's it's a, a unique uh, little um, curious egg of a film. Um, I I could pick more individual faults with it as, a, as a, if I went into it in real detail, but I don't think that's particularly useful in this case because the kind of totality of it is so strange and weird and violent and occasionally touching and often just weird. Yeah, it, it, it's a very, very interesting filmmaking and that's 
what I would like to encourage people to watch, if nothing else. Whether you think it's good or bad, I think if you find it interesting, that's surely enough. And uh, this is certainly that. Um, yes, uh, yeah. I don't know if I, I liked it more or less on a second viewing. I think I just found it weird on both occasions. And uh, yeah, uh, that's uh, good enough for me. <laughs> I, I'll let you know um, that you do, in fact, like it considerably more on a second viewing. Fair enough. Because, um, <laughs> yeah, as I said, we didn't discuss it for long, but um, and I was more negative on it than you were, but you'd like found, I think you said, basically the first third, maybe the first hour, like really interesting, then it just kind of yeah. went off the rails and you were just like, what the hell is this now? Yeah. Um, <laughs> whereas my interest wandered a bit earlier than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I really do think it is about something actually um, and I'm pretty confident I could defend that point or those points pretty well I mean, and it's like because the fact it's about the Spanish Civil War and the mm. Franco's regime and things that there's so much of that in there and the clearly the wounds that a civil war leaves yeah. um, and the fact against the fact that the director's Basque yes um, and so there's the, the El Luta thing going on in the background. He was finally pardoned after Franco died. Um, mm. And he'd always maintained his innocence, but that was going on in the background. So there's that kind of symbol of, he was seen like as a folk hero, basically, a symbol of opposition against Franco. And the, with the director being Basque, that massive Eta car bomb, that, yeah. um, which how um, El Lobo ended, if you remember, Scott, it was about the guy oh, yeah. who infiltrated yeah. um, Eta. Whose name I forget, Mikhail something. Um, Mikhail. Uh, yeah, so it's it's got that in it, the uh, Admiral Carrero Blanco. <laughs> yes, Carrero Blanco. I looked up earlier and it's got right in my head, but yes, mm-hmm. uh, that massive car bomb that, that's in it kind of coincides with uh, Javier's story. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not unintentional, that was a massive thing. Um, left a crater in the road, you know, and something like massive in terms of the actual thing and the impact as well. So I'm sure there's a lot of kind of the tensions of being in a country after a civil war. There's the whole Franco thing. There's potentially the Basque separatist movements um, with the dread of being Basque. Um, and as well as because there's references to Eta in there. There's parental stuff, maybe dead parents. There's so much in there. And I, I really do think I could, it's a lot, about a lot of things. And I could you know, defend a point on that. The problem is it's about a lot of things. Yes. <laughs> it, it's, it sometimes it feels like it's about all of the things. And then there's like, I, I don't know if there are direct references to anything. It's like, but there's so much there that does call back, make you think of um, like Frankenstein is the, the big one. Like monsters not knowing how to love and then, but like twisted on the outside, but good inside. But then Javier ends up being a monster anyway. Yeah. Um, and then it's women's, like she sort of falls in love with both of them. Um, but neither of them are good for her and it not, doesn't work out for her anyway. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so by that point, my, my head was just too full of much and I was just enjoying Carolina Bang's legs instead, um, which I know is really <laughs> shallow, but it was just, it was such incredible um, visual overload. And I'm like, no, I'll, I'll look at those instead. <laughs> uh, and like, I'm like, oh, how did I not remember that? Um, uh, <laughs> legs being my thing, but no, it's, yeah, it's. I mean, it's so much interesting going on. I, I just think the director ought to have shown a little restraint and not had everything interesting going on. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I've not seen anything like it. It's it's pretty damn unique. Yes, but for me personally, it, it may be too much with the clowns. <laughs> right, though, we're going to 
move on to our last episode of the day. This one, where actually, this time is where the English name is better. The Spanish name, Las Brujas de Zuguramurde, the Witches of Zuguramurde. Maybe that's meaningful in Spain, but it's honestly a kind of mundane title compared to Witching and Bitching. Yes, I think Witches of Eastwick would certainly be a lot better if it was called Witching and Bitching. So, uh, <laughs> yes. In which Jose, uh, Hugo Silva and Antonio, Mario Casas, uh, rob a pawn shop of their stock of wedding rings and make their escape, hijacking Manuel, Jaime Ordonez's taxi and making for the French border uh, with Jose's son Sergio, Gabriel Delgado, dragged along for the ride. Well, it was his day to look after the kid, much to his strange wife Sylvia, Marcena Gomez's distaste. Uh, this crime does not go on the server, and the crew are chased by Sylvia and two police inspectors, Pacheo, Sicun de la Rosa, and Calvo, Pepon uh, Nito, uh, to the Navarrese town of Zugaramudri, uh, unknowingly playing into the wider plans of the resident witches. Head witch, Graciana, uh, Carmen Mura, has a plan to claim Sergio as their chosen one for world domination, and Dot Cucinitum as her mother, Emerichtu, uh, Tilly Palves absentmindedly tries, and they then set about capturing Sergio and crew, aided by Graciana's daughter, Eva, played by a returning Carolina Bang, and of course, their supernatural powers. Understandably numb to chuffed at the prospect of being wicker-manned, the lads attempt to escape the witch's mansion they soon find themselves tied up in, aided by Eva, who has fallen in love with Jose, largely for plot reasons, leading <laughs> to a chaotic final act full of computer-generated peril and offbeat shenanigans that kind of lost me, if I'm being honest. Which is a shame, as the earlier two only more grounded-by-comparison acts of the heist and the chase by the cops and then witches was a lot of fun, with a number of pretty funny lines and performances. Uh, some of that's still there in the closing reels, but it's maybe leaning a bit too heavily on the CG for a bit of a spectacle, rather than going for laughs, which is what I'm here for. I, again, I think attempting to divine deep meaning from an Alex Delanglesia's joint is probably an overall analysis too far, and while I perhaps prefer the more creative chaotic rawness of his earlier films, uh, I'd still say there's more than enough laughs to be extracted from witching and bitching to make it worth your while, just, despite being, uh, I would imagine, the biggest budget film that he's done. Uh, maybe The Last Circus um, rivals it, but um, yeah, this one kind of doesn't quite work. It's fine. I don't regret having watched it, but it's skippable in a way that perhaps even 800 bullets wasn't um, there's less to this in a number of ways it's, it's fine, I don't, I don't don't hate it but yeah, it's not special yeah um, it, it's fine, I enjoyed it to be honest I actually found that the the high point was the opening because that heist was incredibly inventive yes, that is a, a definite high point yes not seen that before and like that was really interesting really fun and then this I've seen in other films but the the kind of sort of petty bickering between them as they drove away with the, mm-hmm. the taxi driver that's really kind of fun yeah it's it's some of the rest that begins to bother me it's I almost feel like it should have gone harder into the kind of disgusting weird stuff like the you know leg flavoured soup yes <laughs> um, there's bits and pieces of that but I kind of think they should have gone further I think that would be quite funny the big problem I have with it is that I was watching this and I was thinking, well, there are two ways you could read this. It's either feels really misogynist, really kind of anti-women, um, yeah. or it's it's kind of going so hard to that because it's taking the piss out of people 
that think that you know women are the enemy and um, they emasculate people and they really want they're controlling and everything goes for them and that things like that. Mm. And that's why I watched that. I'm thinking that's how I feel. That's probably more right. But then I'm, I'm basing. Then I've got to remember, I've got all these other films I've watched to base that on. Like, and yeah, unfortunately, it's probably the other one because <laughs> it's been such a strong theme through his things. This can at least a bit of a sour taste in my mouth for this film. Mm, yeah, and it's like you got these women as the enemy. Like, why? Because it's so kind of extreme in some points that that's why I'm sure like. It must be taking the piss, right? It must be kind of just being so over the top to say what a ridiculous idea this is. But again, with all those other films, really 800 bullets and the way Carmen Maurer is portrayed in that. Like, uh, I don't know. Um, uh. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, even like um, Cuban for Pecto as well, there's, there's kind of a good chunk of that, like the way marriage is portrayed in there and like um, having children and things like uh I don't know. I, I'm not so happy about this. Um, however, for the most part, I was able to set that aside and still enjoy it for the the visuals. Um, uh, just some really funny stuff. Uh, Karen Maurer's okay in this. I, I kind of feel that like she's I mean, she's such a good actor. I think maybe she just wasn't fully into this, whereas Terrelle Paveth really is. And I just wish there'd be more of her because she was having a hit. Mm, yeah. Um, and she was really interesting to watch. Uh, Married to the grandmother. It's so, I mean, it's pretty visually inventive. It's interesting. There are some generally funny points. It's um, so I'm still, still recommend it, but it's probably the least interesting. Yeah, that's probably the best way I put it. It's the least interesting of these, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose Creamin for Pecto isn't as interesting, but it's better. Yeah. Uh, whereas this is, I mean, it, it's fine. I was solidly entertained for most of it. Yeah, I suppose I could still recommend it. It's just, it's, it's perhaps less essential. There's, there's probably less to be, um, for all that there are some like visually interesting set pieces and like fun, like people walking on ceilings and stuff. It, yeah. It's just, I don't know. I don't know why that feels less inventive than some of the other stuff. Again, though, sometimes that's just when you watch so many films from the one filmmaker in such a short time. Um, yes, I would say, was, yeah, this, this was definitely not the ideal way to experience this canon, sort of um, stacked together very quickly. <laughs> but, it often uh, isn't. I mean, yes. I mean, it's, it swings around a bit, so when you want to do for something like this, a podcast like this, that when you watch them, a, a lot of work from on direct in a very short space of time, it is, you, you tend to see... Um, repeated themes and like things that they'll do a lot, that sort of thing. Th- those tend to stand out more, but at the same time, things can be a bit samey. Yeah. Um, and if you're seeing them a couple of years apart, well, then you're never going to feel that. When you see them like within two days, things maybe have less impact. It feels like you're just repeating himself. Uh, so you know, as they swings and roundabouts. Um, yeah, uh, I, I don't necessarily discount that, but I mean, the things that were repeated that kind of worked for me was the things like the, the little bits of dialogue interchanges and that kind of stuff, which, yeah. which still worked and still worked in this. But it's the, the, the things that didn't work was more the kind of reliance on CG set pieces towards the end of it. And that was a bit more, a bit less interesting. And it felt a bit more like every other film, as opposed to mm. uh, the rest of his canon, which. Um, was more interesting in, in a number of ways. 
yeah. So as you say, swings and roundabouts. But uh, yeah. how rare is it that we get to one of these episodes where we kind of pick a director we don't know all that much about and get to the end of it and say, well, actually, probably recommend watching all of them that we've spoken about. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. there's some caveats and revisals, but for the most part, yeah. Um, just a, a final thing on uh, witching, pitching though, Scott is. Uh, I was kind of like it was slightly annoying me like Pepo Nieto. Like in some scenes he kinda of looked like the Spanish Patton Oswald and then in other scenes he looked like the Spanish Johnny Vegas. Um <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I couldn't make up my mind which obviously that's not important, but I just thought I would mention it. <laughs> <laughs> I settled for the Spanish Johnny Vegas in the end. It was more that in most scenes. Obviously the, the one other thing maybe um about witching and bitching but I think we're both like not hugely enamoured of that final you know, twenty minutes trailer with it becomes that CGI mm. set piece sort of or like a CGI enhanced set piece. Mm. Um when like there's kinda I suppose it's slightly weirder stuff, but I could probably in mind quite a lot of humour out of too of like the the old woman constantly disappearing, even though she's only being killed and then suddenly disappearing through the door in the bar and she's suddenly twenty miles away or something yeah. like <laughs> Uh, a wee bit hard one. That would have been quite funny, I think. Yeah. Um, but again, I can't really second guess why he was doing it. I just, um, I just found that more entertaining than some of the later stuff. Hmm. Yeah. Yes, minor points. Right, um, that will wrap us up for today. If you would like to get in touch with us, then of course you can. Uh, do so on the Twitters at Fuzz and Film, uh, through email at podcast at fuzzandfilm.com or through Facebook at facebook.com slash fuzzonfilm. Them's the ways you can do it. And I guess until next time, take care of yourself and each other. Ta-ra! Nos vemos en la cara, babe. <laughs>